We're gonna talk about coming from Devil's Jew. It's something you wondered if Talking Joe would ever do. Our guests will explain it all to you. Gonna take some time to read the books we've never read. Oh, oh. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest-running dedicated G.I. Joe Comics podcast. If you're new to the show, you can find out all of the details over the website, talkingjoe.uk. Today, we are continuing our look at the disavowed era of G.I. Joe with an interview special with guest Tim Seeley. Now, uh, before we bring him on, let me just introduce my regular co-host. It's Tim Finn. (laughs) Hello, Mark, and hello, listeners. Let's bring in our guest yes. right now. So without further ado, let's uh, add him in. Tim Seeley is an American comic book creator. Many credits to his name. It includes writing books such as Grayson, Batman Eternal, and co-creating image comics titles Hack Slash, but most importantly, as a creator synonymous with the Devil's Due era of G.I. Joe, most significantly penciling uh, issues 23 to 43, the bulk of them anyway, writing issues of Frontline, Special Missions, the third and fourth Transformers crossovers, and more besides. So here he is. Welcome, Tim. Hey, what's up? Good to have you. Good to meet you. I mean, or whatever. Good to, that's, that's our line. Good to have you. Right. Uh, sorry, it's early and I've been writing for a long time and my brain is fried. So there you go. It's uh, good to, to have you on and uh, talk devil's uh, due really so maybe a good place to start would be at the beginning it sounds like you and josh blaylock rose up through the ranks together that you, you knew each other for both from a very early age yeah i so i met josh um at wizard world chicago back in the day uh in a portfolio line uh, he was standing in front of me and he the uh, i think he was well, actually he was uh, at behind the table of uh, heroes um hall of heroes and publisher and I'd showed him a comic I was working on, and he had just signed up to do a book there. And I loved the Hall of Heroes stuff. They had Vortex and uh, Cyberfrog and some other stuff. I think I was 18. And then, so Josh and I just, you know, he said, this is cool stuff. We should we should talk about doing stuff someday. And then he, this is a bit back before email. So we would just, like, send each other packets of, uh, of art and samples and stuff and talk on the phone. Uh, so we worked on Minotaur together. And then Josh, at one point, called me. I was in college, so I was like 19 or 20. And he said he was going to try to get the license to G.I. Joe. And we had a G.I. Joe sticker thing together. Um, I, I drew a sexy Baroness, and, and uh, we got a cease and desist from Hasbro. Um, and Josh was like, yeah, but now I know who to send to. So uh, we got uh, the pitch going, and then he got the rights to do G.I. Joe. And then uh, I was I had just intern at Marvel my last year of college and then ultimately when Josh you know decided to start a publishing company uh and kind of shocked the world with the sales of G.I. Joe he needed help and uh I was living in Minneapolis and uh I knew how to run a editorial room I guess kind of from having just interned at Marvel so uh he had me come down and become a uh, employee and I started out as a art director editor I guess scheduling guy uh, and then eventually I became the artist of G.I. Joe and started writing stuff and all that other stuff. So whenabouts in like the, the publishing history of G.I. Joe did you actually join Devil's Jew? I mean, pretty much from the beginning to some degree. Uh, you know, issue one came out 9, 12, 
01 and uh, like right after mm-hmm. 9-11. And then I'd been helping Josh a little bit with stuff, but I was living in Minneapolis. So I was just like, you know, helping him with uh, stuff I knew about setting up editorial stuff. But I didn't, um, I didn't work there full time. And then about six months later or so, seven months later, that March, uh, he had me come down from Minneapolis to work for a week. And really just kind of because, you know, the comic was so successful. Um, and I think so much of like the scheduling and stuff was kind of just a shock to, to the system for those guys that I, I had come down and helped them out. I also did some inking on issue four or five. I can't remember. Maybe four. Because, you know, the editor, the, the anchor was a friend of mine. The artist was a friend of mine. Steve Kurth was a guy I went to high school wow. with or college. I'm sorry. Uh, so it was all people who knew each other. And then I, I came down that March and then that following uh, May or June, I moved to Chicago to work on staff. So I think the issue seven or eight had just come out and I started working on issue 10 or 11. And I and very early on when I, when I moved down to Chicago, me and Josh and Mike Norton and Chris Crank got together and like basically created a story Bible for what the series was going to be going forward. So, you know, the whole, like the Serpenter storyline and the, all that stuff was sort of a plan that we had made very early on. Oh, wow. And then kind of, you know, it was eventually when Josh stopped writing it and then uh, Brandon Jerwa took over and stuff. That was all sort of part of our loose plan. That's interesting. So like a kind of loose plan collaboration that you always all worked on together rather than sort of Josh completely in isolation, him, him locked away in a room with a blank piece of paper trying to figure out what, what he's going to do. The first four for sure were, were Josh doing all the writing and, and literally locked away in a room trying <laughs> above a Seven Eleven in Chicago, uh, <laughs> you know, trying to uh, both publish a book, which was phenomenally successful and wrangle all this, you know, I mean, I just remember that those first like few months was just like, holy shit, I know there was this going to be this much other stuff than making the comic. And of course, you know, sending stuff to Hasbro and, and uh, making changes. And I, one of my first jobs was just going over the art and changing things that, you know, Hasbro had said, hey, this doesn't match the toy or they objected to the content because there was, you know, something too sexy or too violent or whatever. So that was like my earliest thing on G.I. Joe besides like helping plot stuff and and mailing stuff to image and stuff. You were making art corrections on the boards or you're making digital corrections or corrections to copies? This was the days before. (laughs) I mean, you could kind of do some digital corrections in Photoshop, but mostly we would do it on boards and then or we do a patch and scan it in. And so there's lots of weird little cover stuff every once in a while where it'll be like, oh, that's a thing we patched in or redrew or whatever, um, you know, because Hasbro, I think, wasn't prepared for the book to be successful. And at the time, G.I. Joe was kind of a dead brand, like they weren't doing anything with it. So and then as it got more successful, they got more sort of interested in making sure that it was maintaining something that, you know, that they could turn around and pitch for a new TV show or a movie or, or something. So that was kind of the the as longer the more successful we got the more we had to do that kind of stuff and you were also asked right if you wanted to, to be the lead artist for, for the launch is that right well the original yeah issue one josh asked me if i wanted to draw it and i i, I mean that's probably right but i thought i wasn't ready for a monthly comic i was 24 right let me see 20 24 i was 24 and i just gotten out of college a year before and I was uh, working at a children's book company full time. And it wasn't like, 
I was kind of just afraid to uh, to do that. So I, I recommended Steve Kurth, who was a guy I had gone to college with, um, who was an amazing artist and was way farther along, you know, and a little bit older than me. So I knew he was ready to go. So and then Barb Schultz, the inker, was another person I knew in Minneapolis. So so I didn't draw the original stuff, but I, I definitely hooked up <laughs> the, the original creative team uh, with the people Josh knew because John Larder and. And the colorist Scott Worley editor, those are all people that Josh knew. So we kind of combined our our Rolodexes uh, to uh, to get that book going. What did you go to college for? What did Steve Kurth go to college for? We both have degrees in illustration. So uh, we went to University of Wisconsin Eau Claire, which is in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. It is a uh, it's a pretty small school, but it, they had a decent art program, and also they were okay with again this is 1996 or whatever 97. They were okay with comics, uh, which was not a thing. I mean, other colleges that I applied to wouldn't let you do comics. But Eau Claire, Steve had done it. And then when I went through, I was like, can I major in illustration? But I want to have to do a focus in comics. And they'd let me do it. And they gave me credit for working at Marvel. And they did all kinds of stuff. So uh, at the time, that was a big that was a big coup because nobody was doing it except for like, you know, Savannah College of Art and Design. So there was no other real, you know, comics program. So, uh, uh, yeah, so Steve and I... Knew each other not through um, college directly because he graduated before me, but uh, we were the comic guys in town in Eau Claire, uh, and we would go to house parties and shit. To, I, the bar we were always at the bar together, uh, so it was easy for me to recommend Steve to do the job because I knew he was an awesome artist. When you joined, comics is is mostly like a freelance kind of industry, really. Most people are freelance, but yeah. but you joined as staff, so so were you getting like a, a standard monthly paycheck and just. Yeah absorbing all of the work that was being chucked at you yeah it was a crazy system because well one of the things josh because there was so much sort of additional stuff there was making the comic drawing and writing it but there was so much other stuff there was like you know designing characters and uh doing art corrections putting things together sending stuff to image sending stuff to hasbro like so he needed people on staff and because i had done that internship and i was kind of and i worked at a publishing company you know for a year and a half by that point like he knew I knew the business side of things, or at least the the production side. I knew that for sure. So you know that he hired me as a basically as an art director. I think was what I was hired as. Mike Norton was hired as an art director. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris Crank was like the web guy, and so that was kind of the initial crew along with Josh and Susan. Um, and yeah, we were staff, uh, which was very unusual. Um, I guess you know IDW and stuff. They all had graphic designers and stuff like that. So we were kind of like. We were doing publishing company jobs, but we were also drawing comics. So eventually my job became, you know, I was full time. I think I was making like 40 grand a year and I was, uh, you know, the full time artist on G.I. Joe. And then because of the schedule of doing a book that was going to have to go through all these approvals, I had to draw a page and a half a day every day. That was my (laughs) that was my job. So the reason I don't have any hair now, (laughs) uh, I had to draw. Pretty quick, but I learned a ton, you know, and, and a big part of that process was just that we were kind of like the original Marvel bullpen almost, like the old idea of, you know, having everybody there to do everything together and always communicating because it was so, so many moving parts to the early Devil's Do stuff. What had you done at Marvel? How long were you there? What had you done at the children's book publishing company? Well, when I was in college, I got an internship at Marvel, so... I was an intern in the Spider-Man. I'd applied to be an art intern, but then I, I didn't get it. And I was like, what the fuck? I didn't get the art internship. 
And then they called me back and they're like, hey, um, we think you applied for the wrong thing here. <laughs> you like to apply for an editorial internship. It was like, okay. Because I thought I didn't know exactly what it was. So I applied and they took me for the Spider-Man office. So um, at the time it was Ralph Macchio and uh, his assistant, Matt. And uh, so the, then I went there and worked there as an intern for the summer. I realized, oh yeah, because the art internship was just production. It was like taking um, zip drives or, uh, and like putting art on them and sending them. It was like not what I would have want, wanted to right. do. And so the editorial job at Marvel was, um, you know, like uh, collating books and accepting art and calling artists when they were late and uh, talking them off the ledge when they were depressed and uh, <laughs> meeting with people. It was a great, it was an amazing internship, but it was also like a really weird time to work in Marvel because they were going through bankruptcy. Uh, and in fact, and not because they weren't selling comics, but because of some bad investments and all this other stuff. So, so one of my jobs sometimes was calling artists and telling them that we were, we were suing them for back pay and shit. <laughs> so like I saw, I saw a lot of stuff, that was good about comics and I saw a lot of bad and I, I saw like how things can go to shit. So I think that really helped, you know, just sort of have a, a good sense of what it would be like to actually work in the business. Um, that was full time one summer. Yeah. I worked there for three, some months from May to late August. So, yeah. And then what did you do with the children's book publisher? I was a staff illustrator. So my job was to uh, read manuscripts for educational children's books and some storybooks. And then like, do spot illustrations or technical diagrams. I was the photo, like this is 1999, 2000. So one of my main jobs was that I was the Photoshop guy. Like they had a staff artist who was traditional and I would help her with her traditional stuff, scan it, do all that shit. Uh, and then I would also just do like tons of illustrations. There's all kinds of books out there that I drew, <laughs> just tons of them. Uh, Cause I was drawing like a couple of books every day every month probably some of this is educational or is it like entertainment learner books oh yeah There's a little bit of both it's in minneapolis it's a great company it was a great job to, to start out on uh because they they did mostly educational stuff but they also did storybooks but uh they're you know I, I like science so i got to do science books which was great and you know animal stuff and i mean i was a pretty uh experienced artist before i started there but after that i could draw anything because I, <laughs> I had to draw just crazy shit all kinds of stuff how to dissect a chicken i did a whole <laughs> how to dissect a chicken in a, in a science class i did all kinds of stuff and you said you said a little earlier that that when you started on the gi joe book that that you're kind of learning as you as you go along and you're trying to you know doing this incredible output you know one and a half pages a day um when i've spoken to, to artists before they'll say oh i can't look at my early work i just you know can't stand it it's horrible I noticed that in a in a recent interview, you said that your favorite issue was actually, I think the first one you did is it issue sixteen or or, or something the the sort of the X Files style one yeah. with um sort of tracking down these spooky children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wondered, you know, what what's your recollection of of that that issue and why why do you have such a um um a strong kind of you know feeling toward towards it even even though it was your first. <laughs> There had never really been a conversation about me drawing G.I. Joe. I think there had been, you know, at some point, Josh was like, hey, we'll get the license for Voltron or Army of Darkness or Micronauts and stuff. And and then it was sort of like, oh, those will be the things that I'll I'll throw in to draw one of those. And Mike was talking about drawing Micronauts and stuff. And so um, that was kind of our, our approach. You know, we would get ourselves a license that we would be able to draw eventually. Uh, but G.I. Joe really wasn't <laughs> on the, the platter for me. And a big part of it is I'm not. I'm not super like I loved the toys as a kid, but I always loved the weird stuff. I always liked 
Cobra Law and, you know, the the stuff that everybody else hates. That's That was our <laughs> But then it, it kind of came up. It's just timing-wise, like, Steve was kind of getting burnt out on the schedule. And um, and tonally, that we knew this issue was going to be different. And it was kind of a it was going to be kind of a spooky horror kind of thing, sort of. And I was like, that's that's my thing. And so it's probably the issue of G.I. Joe that matches the most of what I would wanted to do, kind of, you know. And we got to sort of re- redesign, you know, Spirit a little bit and do a sort of different thing with him. So he wasn't quite as, like, stereotypical tropey, you know. And 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 then, like, bring CoverGirl to the forefront because she hadn't done a lot of stuff, you know, as a character on her own, just drive tanks and stuff. So, um, yeah. But I think it felt like, like, it felt like I really understood it finally. And I, I, I just had so much fun drawing that issue. And, like, I don't know. As, the thing is that happens as you get older is uh, you start to doubt things more because you know shit. And when I was younger, I didn't know anything. And so I didn't doubt anything. Right? I was just like, this shit's going to be fucking awesome. People will love it. I don't care. And, <laughs> and I, like, which is an attitude I don't have anymore. It's been beaten out of me by working in comics for 20-some years. So, so it is, I can look at it and just be like, holy shit, I just went nuts. I was just like, oh, shit, the... You know, here's a crazy ass, <laughs> super image '90s influenced take on uh, you know uh, GI Joe, and I I didn't care. I thought it would be cool. After S- Steve Kerth had sort of dropped off the book, there was a kind of an, an in, sort of an in and out of various artists. Didn't seem to to sort of sort of find uh, a regular artist that that could quite s- stick for more than a, a few few issues, and then and then you joined around about yeah. 23 ish and then and then pretty much stayed on the book for for 40 to, to 43 um, yeah. um with a couple of fill-ins in between i think so so like a really long stint and i think you know when when an artist is on a book for such a long time that it sort of builds up that longevity and that consistency on a book yeah. it's almost like the the kind of bigger than the sum of the pieces because it's it's an era then yeah, rather yeah. than just a piecemeal yeah and that's the thing you could do back you know then and 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 the reason I ended up working on 23, if I remember, was, you know, we were, uh, yeah, we're kind of, various artists were coming in, but I think, you know, people were like, I can draw a couple issues, but then Voltron is coming. And then, you know, I got to do, I got, and we knew the artists that we were working with were going to be busy with other stuff. So, but the, I, if I remember uh, the meeting I had with Joshua, he was like, you know what, people really liked 16. So, you know, if you want to do it, <laughs> and uh, which was, you know, I, I, it was like vindicating to some degree that it that it worked. And again, I was young and I didn't give a shit. And I just thought, you know, everything was, yeah, it'll be great. I'll work it out. And I it wasn't jaded or anything. So, um, yeah, I just ended up rolling into 23 with uh, Brandon on it. And I think, you know, we had had a pretty good sense of what it was going to be. And we knew now, like, because I think early on we were working on it, we're like, well, is this, you know, direct sequel to the Marvel book? Do things from the cartoon count? And we kind of came to a point where we're like, yeah, it all counts. It's all it's all counts. And, and we had a pretty good, which I really liked about it. I thought that was kind of a creative way for us to do it. And, you know, just, we didn't, we worried about continuity, but we weren't sort of held to it. So we could bring in the red shadows. We asked Hasbro, like what was on the table and they sort of gave us a list of things. And we're like, well, shit, we're going to bring back the red shadows and everything. So it was really fun. It was, you know, and one of my favorite thing about that era was like, we would go to Hasbro and we would like go hang out for licensing days and like, see what they were working on and see toy prototypes. And I mean, it was, it was pretty fun, you know, but hang out with Larry. That was awesome. That was my favorite part of the job. I think was we got to hang out with Larry and uh, he's an idol of mine and one of the best dudes uh, in the biz. And so all those things were, you know, it, it was just such a perfect first 
first gig, if that is what uh, it was for me. And you, you opened the door on your encounter with meeting Larry. So I think there's a story then that has to be told. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, have I told it before? I'm sure I've told it before. Well, because Larry and I were, uh, we would always end up at these joke conventions together. And then if we were at some kind of convention, Larry was kind of like, and you, you know him, he's, he's kind of a, he, he, you know, I, I think he's grown into it, but at the time he was kind of like, you know, I did G.I. Joe's job. I had a good time. It was cool. And, uh, you know, he, it's kind of like that thing that Gene Roddenberry would say. He was like, I created Star Trek, but I don't have Star Trek sheets, you know, and <laughs> how, how Larry was uh, with G.I. Joe. And so like when we would go to conventions, it would always be like, do some, you know, panel or signing. And then Larry would be like, hey, let's go get a beer. And uh, so he, he was just like a cool guy. We could talk about music and shit. Like we just had a, a good time hanging out. And I really looked up to him because he was a guy who wrote and drew, which was something I wanted to do. Um, and there wasn't a ton of people in comics that wrote and drew, uh, you know, with like the longevity of, of Larry Hama. So, but yeah, we ended up at a con one time. It was Hasbro was there, and it was it was in Disney World in Florida, and uh, <laughs> Hasbro took us to Pleasure Island, which was or Treasure Island. I can't remember what it's called. Pleasure Island. It's the adult Disney resort. You mean for you mean for grownups and, and right. parents? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. Not, not like thirty, but adult. You know, <laughs> I just, we, we it was me and Larry and like Dwight Stahl and uh, uh, all these people from Hasbro and Sam Wells and uh, man, we just had way too much fun. I mean, we just it was. I have just flashes of that night. It's like I remember us chasing giant people with stil on stilts, and I remember us jumping in the fountain. Like, just I don't know what the fuck we were doing. We were having a good time. Uh, but on the way back, we were driving, you know, we had a, a cab pick us up. And it was me and Larry and Sam in the front. No, Sam had gone home early. It was just me and Larry. And so we're going through the resort, the back side of the resort, like past Epcot and stuff in a cab. And I was like, not doing well. And uh, I was like, you got to pull over the cab. And so Larry's like trying to get me out of the cab. And he, he opens the car and I just puke right on his, on his shoes, right, right there, right. Just barfed on his shoes. And then, you know, <laughs> he's trying to help me up and stuff. And then the sprinklers turned on. We were in like some business park in their backyard. <laughs> I just barfed there. And then the sprinklers turned on because it was five in the morning. Uh, so, you know, classic me, uh, real impressive. <laughs> then we got back to the hotel and I I woke up the next morning. I'm so hungover. And Josh was so mad. He's like, oh, my God, you guys got so crazy. Dr Sam was super sick. And he's like, yeah, so crazy drunk. Hasbro's going to be so mad at us. Uh, and then we met them in the morning. They're like, hey, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it was all good. And uh, every time I see Larry, he moves it out of the way. So I don't. Really see <laughs> yeah. Uh, jumping around a little bit. What was your first exposure to G.I. Joe as a kid? Older siblings, neighbors. Did you know of G.I. Joe? Like, had it existed before you got into it? The cartoon, the toy, the comic, like 70s G.I. Joe. I didn't know 70s G.I. Joe, um, but I did. You know, I grew up in the 80s uh, in the country. And so uh, our big joy was going to Shopko or Kmart uh, and my grandma would buy us a toy. So I, my brother, Steve and I were the He-Man, Thundercats guys. My brother, Brad, was the G.I. Joe guy. Uh, and so he was always getting the G.I. Joe stuff. And then we didn't have cable or anything. And we didn't have, you know, WGN or whatever. So we didn't see the cartoon until, until later. But because my brother was getting the toys, sometimes we would get the Marvel comics. So I started reading the Marvel comic around the Cobra Civil War, I think. Uh, yeah, somewhere around there. Maybe before that. I, I definitely had the issue with uh, the Mike Zek cover with Snake Eyes and Flint and 
Lady J on it. Like I, I definitely was reading that stuff then. Um, and I had a few figures, but I wasn't like a hardcore G.I. Joe toy guy. But then later I, I, so I saw the cartoon, I think in, um, uh, like when it was in repeats, I think I saw it, but I was never, it was never like the main thing for me. Um, but I did really like the comic, the, I think I read it all the way from that issue that I started the Cobra Civil War up until the Joe Transformers crossovers, which I was obsessed with. Like, so the miniseries <laughs> and the one where Megatron started appearing in the, in the book, that was all the way up my alley. Andrew Wildman stuff I was super into. So for me, it was mostly a comic book as that I was a fan of. And then I had like some figures. Like to this day, I still have my Alley Viper. It's actually on my wall back there. And I still have some of the <laughs> figures. Cause, but there was, you know, I love Cobra Law. I saw the G.I. Joe movie when it came out. You know, like when they added horror elements to G.I. Joe, I was I was all in. Where where did you get your comics as a kid? Um, well, we had a grocery store called Twenty Nine Super in uh, Schofield, Wisconsin, and it had a giant comic rack. So my mom would take us grocery shopping, and she would just drop us off at the rack, and then we would just look through comics and Heavy Metal magazine and stuff, and uh, so and pick out comics. And then we also had a Walgreens, uh, no Walgreens, a Walden Books. I mean, we had a Walden Books as well. And then uh, eventually we got a comic book store, not until 1989, we got a comic book store in my town uh, called Gateway Comics and Games, and that's a, that was a big one for me. We would go every Friday. My mom would uh, take us to town and drop us off. New Comic Day was in fr- on Friday back then. And that was so, I mean, I was a huge comic book guy, not necessarily like very specific to genres or anything, but, but that was like a big part of it, you know. And so I, if I recall, definitely the there's that one issue of... Uh, G.I. Joe with Serpentor on the cover, and he's got Baroness over the top of the his tank. Mm-hmm. I bought that yeah. off the rack at, um, at a quick trip in Schofield, Wisconsin <laughs> in 1988 or whatever it was. So so we were talking a bit about the, that sort of the long run that you're having as the artist on on the book. And uh, so, so, you know, Brandon Joe is making his mark as the, as the writer, but then as it's wrapping up, he's, you know, having to tweak what you know his vision of the story to kind of wrap wrap it up ready for the america's elite what was what was that kind of experience like from from your lens as as the artist and concluding your run with issue 43 sort of being uh replaced by uh, a new artist i mean i was glad of it at the time and i i, I suggested stefano for the for america's elite because he was my collaborator on hack slash and and to this day he's one of my my closest friends so and did you discover him I don't, not really, because he had done, um, he had done something with. I think Scott Worley kind of was the first guy to bring him in because he brought him in for for Micronauts, and then um, he and Stefano and I started uh, meeting each other at conventions and stuff, and so we were always like, we would talk about horror movies all the time. So when I came up with Hack Slash, he was the first guy I asked, and mostly it was just you know pre sort of zooms and shit like this. So we would just talk on on email or instant message and stuff and talk about horror movies. Um, so I don't think I discovered him, but I was a big champion of him. I pushed him for, uh, America's elite. And, you know, obviously he and I did hack slash together and still do hack slash together 20 years later. But yeah, I mean, at the time I, I, I do, I definitely knew I was ready to, um, be done with G.I. Joe cause I'd done 20 issues and I really enjoyed it, but I also kind of felt like, you know, the sort of more military aspects of it were not really, my thing and certainly like drawing airplanes i was like i don't want to fucking do this anymore so i was cool with you know having a good run and being happy with it and uh 
you know, I, we definitely, Brandon and I, I think we felt like we had done what we came there to do. Um, and we, we were going to work with Brandon on other stuff anyway. So we, we were kind of not too worried about it. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I suggested Joe Casey initially as well. So, you know, he was a guy I was friends with. And Josh had met him, I think, at a con. And we were like, yeah, we got to get Joe on this. And uh, so we were excited about it. I, I don't think it was a, I don't remember ever being like, oh, bummer. You know, and I was like, this is, this is rad. This would be really interesting. Do you feel like Brandon was final storyline was, was truncated or that he was pushed out early? I don't remember. Maybe. I mean, I, I don't remember us ever having bad blood about it, but I definitely remember we needed to do something, I think, sales wise. Mm-hmm. And we knew, I, I, if I remember correctly, and again, this is so long ago, but we knew like, you know, IDW was sniffing around and we knew that in part because of what we had done, that G.I. Joe was worth a lot more, right? Like it was suddenly had gone up in value in part because the our comics were really successful. And so, you know, we, we knew we had to sort of juice it up. We had to make it, people get them talking again, which is an unfortunate reality of ongoing comics is that you you always have to do that. and so. You know, that was a way we'd figured out. It was a way to do it. We could change kind of the way that we we did the book. It could be, you know, smaller cast. I think we kind of felt like the bigger cast, though, was great for the hardcore fans, wasn't as appealing to, like, the more casual fans who were like, I don't know who the fuck Outback is. I don't care. Give me, <laughs> give me Duke and, you know, Scarlet or whatever. Yeah, so, but I, I just remember us thinking, like, okay, this is what we have to do, and we'll figure out a way to keep everybody working on stuff. But, you know, I mean, and part of that always is when you're working on stuff that isn't yours, that inherently there's things that you wouldn't have done, right? You're, you're, you're working with, you know, and Hasbro is always pretty easy to work with. And I, I don't really have any complaints working with them whatsoever, but of course they had a plan. They're like, Oh, we're going to do this line of toys and we're going to do America's no, what was the one? Not America's lead. Uh, they were doing a new toy line. I can't remember what it was called. Um, Sigma six, Sigma six. And, you know, they were changing their focus a little bit. Uh, they were moving away from the three and three quarters. They were doing those bigger figures. So, you know, change or die in this business. So I, I think, you know, I hope Brandon felt like he got to do a lot of what he wanted to do. But I'm sure there's things that we, you know, didn't get to do. And you, you said change or die there. And that's a good segue because as as your career kind of pivoted from being mostly an artist to mostly a, a writer, so, so maybe if you could talk about that, but, uh, but before we quite get to that, we, we've just been talking about uh, G.I. Joe versus Transformers 2, which you, which you drew, and we spoke to EGA Sue about that a little bit as well, and um, a really interesting collaborative project. One of the comments from like the interviews at the time was that Dan Jolly said that you had a brilliant storytelling idea, which meant they had to sort of radically change one of the uh, plot points for Transformers versus G.I. Joe 2. So, so obviously, even then, you kind of got storytelling chops, and you're thinking about the story and not just the art component. Do you remember what uh, what it was? That this you is this is the time travel one. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah. I'm drawing that one. I was drawing the GI Joes. EJ was drawing the Transformers. I don't know. I, I don't remember. Okay. I mean, I remember the. So the cool thing about that one, and Dan is an awesome writer, and I mean, one of the best I've worked with. I remember he was really open to things that were visual ideas. You know, because he would just be like. I, I got to draw the, I got to write the dialogue and come up with a plot. But if you got something cool to draw, just do it. So I don't remember what, I don't, I don't remember. I know we talked a lot about like, if we're going to do time travel stuff, we got to do like a, 
1930s gangster transformers and at the time none of that stuff you know that was the first time it had been done mm. toy, you know so i did i add the time travel to the future one i did i added the let's go to the future and see the that's right okay there we go i thought it might be yeah that future one is a bit of a horror element yeah that that might be the one but dan is a horror writer so right. uh, but I, yeah i'm pretty sure wasn't it that we were gonna have they were using making energon out of people. I think that might have been what we. I don't remember. <laughs> it was a long time ago. But I remember we threw around some weird ass ideas. That, like the transformers were eating people, uh, like turning them into like draining their blood and turning them into energon and stuff. I think I don't remember. Um, I want to I want to redirect you to the other half of Mark's question, and then I want to ask about the next two GI Joe Transformers crossovers. But can you talk about? being a writer and and making this and, and this might be a sort of a more recent question than your life at devils do but can you talk about uh changing a focus yeah. to more writing and less drawing well i don't know if it was ever changed the focus because when i the first thing i ever did for devils do was love buddy and mr hell which i i wrote and drew but one of the things i learned at marvel working as intern i was always really afraid to write anything i thought i wasn't quite uh like ready to do it so when i was at marvel i, I met this guy named brendan hay who did a lot of stuff for Devil's Do as well. Uh, but he was a writer, like a writer, writer. Like he would write a screenplay in a weekend. He was that kind of guy. And he went on to, you know, work at the daily show and, and did all kind. Of, he now works on the gremlins TV show animation. show. So he's, he was like a real writer. Uh, and so, you know, I, I started just collaborating with like people I consider real writers. And so that was really like really educational for me. Cause I saw like how someone turned something into a script, but what it led to ultimately was that I got really more comfortable with scripts. I'd never seen a script before in my life. And so I, Brendan really helped me sort of understand that that was something I could do. And then I wrote that Love Bunny book and I drew it. And so it was always something in my head I knew I kind of knew how to do. When I started working on G.I. Joe stuff, like, you know, we come up with a frontline story and Mike and I wanted to do this thing. And Mike had an idea about doing, a, you know, cooking with, with Roadblock. And, and so you know, we came up with that story and I ended up typing it out and I was like, Hey, that was, that was, that was kind of fun and kind of easy. Uh, and so while I was working on GI Joe, one of, you know, whenever I had frustrations with like, Oh, you can't draw that. Uh, I'd be like, I'll write it down, you know? And then I decided I was going to make a comic of which I put all the stuff I couldn't do. Uh, and that became hack slash, which I wrote. And originally I was going to draw it. Robert Kirkman was going to write it. And then he got busy and he ended up walking dead, took off. So, uh, so I was like, ah, I'll just write it. And then I, was still drawing G.I. Joe, so I couldn't draw it, and I gave it to Stefano. So I'd been draw writing anyway. Um, I just didn't, I, you know, a big part of it was just a level of confidence. And then once I had stuff out, you know, once I saw a book I wrote on the stands, it was just like, well, I, I can just keep doing this. So it's always been kind of part of what I do, but it didn't pay the bills until, you know, probably 10, 10 12 years ago. So, you know, I, and again, and I think part of it was talking to Larry, really helped because Larry was always just kind of like when you're drawing, you're writing it anyway. So why not? <laughs> Interesting. You know? Okay. So the final page of GI Joe Transformers two has Cobra law. Mark, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong. They're not in the third crossover, but they are in the fourth crossover. And uh, the fourth, fourth crossover is two double-sized issues has Cobra law um, can you talk about your approach to to three and four now that now that the crossover was your territory? 
Yeah, I'm trying to remember because it was a long time ago. But I remember uh, we were we, we had artists that we knew we could work with that were going to um, be really good Transformers artists, which was the hardest thing to do is find people who could draw Transformers. And I, I we knew we wanted to do something big and crazy because the GI the one that IDW had done or DreamWorks DreamWorks no Dreamwave sorry yeah the World War Two one. Right. And so we were kind of competing with them because they would do their own thing and we were trying to stand out from them. And so, but we started like competing with them trying to do something different. Uh, and so we decided let's just go bigger and crazier. And so the idea for the third one was like, I, I pitched it to Josh was what if, what if Serpentor was made out of Megatron and other transformers? Like instead of being Julius Caesar or whatever, he's, you know, He's got Megatron. And so we used a part of the third one because originally the cameo that we had in two of Cobra Law was like just a joke because Hasbro was like, you don't use them. They're <laughs> are sort of ashamed of them. We don't want to use them. <laughs> so it was just like a joke. But then uh, the third one, like, I don't know, it was fun and goofy and big and it gave them lots of new toys to play with, right? Because there was, you know, a Serpentor that transformed into a jet or whatever. So the fourth one then was, it was like, Seeley, just do whatever the hell you want. And I was like, I'm bringing back Joe Colton and I'm doing, <laughs> I'm doing the Yeti playset, and I'm doing Cobra Law. And also Cobra Law works for Unicron. I was like, just uh, went crazy. Just, you know. In the Andrew Wildman, you have someone who can definitely draw both. Right. Yes. And and then the pitch was, hey, we can get Andrew Wildman. I was, and I, as a kid, of course, I loved Andrew Wildman stuff. So I, I was like, yes, I'm going to just draw, I'm going to write this for Andrew to go crazy on and i don't know like i don't that fans don't always respond as well to stuff where you're just like here's a ton of crazy ideas let's have fun they don't always respond to it that well because i think sometimes they think you're not taking their the thing they love seriously but but to me that is the point right like these are a bunch of toys and you're just mashing them together like you're a kid (laughs) so that was always the appeal to me and um you know the idea that that essentially the earth was seeded for unicron's coming and that Cobra Law was kind of the caretaker. Was like that. That's fun as shit. And it was also kind of based on the original book, uh, you know, the Horizon, um, the one that introduced Shangri-La, and all that stuff, which was what Cobra Law was based on anyway. Lost Horizon? Yeah, Lost Horizon. And then plus, that's why we call it Black Horizon. And then, of course, like the Cthulhu, you know, the Lovecraftian elements. So it was just like a nerdy horror kid getting to do the stuff that, you know, was implied but not, uh, explicit in those in those creations, you know. I mean, definitely Unicron is basically Lovecraft Transformers, and definitely uh, Cobra Law is the same thing. You know, it's the cult, it's the people becoming fish dudes. Uh, you know, it's it's that sort of kind of horror stuff. Anyway, you mentioned as well that sort of your your friends with Robert Kirkman and like works and stuff, and the you know the industry rumor at the moment is that he might have some involvement in GI Joe in the in the future and uh so so i wondered if you could sort of touch on your experience of working with robert on on gi joe in the past uh yeah i have a couple of stories about it one when we were trying to figure out other things to do with gi joe and that was around the time that we were doing uh, uh the um front line we were trying to think of other series we could do with gi joe and i was friends with robert and uh and he and i talked about doing something together and again he was originally going to write hack slash and then um i got him to pitch us a uh, snake eye series and it was it was like a just pure action i was going to draw it 
And I remember there was like a crazy scene. There's like tons of crazy scenes. And there was like a snake eyes fight on the moon. And we loved it. Josh and I thought it was great. And I remember we sent it to Hasbro and they said, um, <laughs> something about you can't put snake eyes on the moon. And I just remember Robert being like, oh, what's so hard about this? The snake eyes on the moon. It's easy. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, but so they didn't take it. Uh, and I remember that being like a big bummer. And then, but you know, I, I had known Robert from cons way back when we were in our early twenties. I think he might've been 19 when I met him, I think. And, um, I know he loves this shit. So I don't have any special insider information on whether it goes to skybound though. I suspect it probably does. Uh, but he's loves this stuff. I was at a con, I think San Diego one time and I was walking around and I saw him shopping for transformers. You know, we used to talk about He-Man guys all the time. I was with him at, or I was with uh, Cena Grace at a convention one time in Arizona. And we found this, uh, I think it was a Centurion or something. I can't remember what it was, but I remember seeing a call with Robert and be like, Hey, do you need this one? And so we <laughs> bought it for him and sent in the mail. So he, the, he is ahead. He has been into this stuff as long as I have known him and much, many years before that. So, uh, I would say he's probably a great curator for, uh, this stuff. If, if the rumors are true. And again, I don't have any special information, but you know, it makes sense. Can you talk about 2007 and, Devils do wrapping up its relationship with Hasbro and GI Joe. When we interviewed Josh Blaylock, he described a lot of fatigue that it had been a real grind for those years with approvals. And despite really good sales, a sense that Hasbro didn't fully believe in or understand GI Joe or what Devils do was doing. Um, how, how did it? And then, and then IDW gets it. Right. And yeah. So can you talk about 2007 and sort of it wrapping up? Yeah. I mean, I don't, again, I don't remember everything about it, but I do remember like there was a sense that, that most of the people at Hasbro liked us fine and were happy to work with us and liked what we were doing. But there were some people that felt like we duped them uh, because, you know, it was a small studio run by just, you know, a couple people. And um, so I remember like, it's, I, it might've been specifically just one guy that did not like us. And, as it went on, he just made things harder for us. I mean, like just started putting things in our way uh, and making the approvals harder and make it, it was like a, like a forced attrition. Like we will make them run away, you know, perhaps one person or very, very few people at Hasbro were yes. making things hard for you and your sense of 2007 was, well, I mean, and I think, so there was kind of two things going on with that. There was that. And then there was also that they knew all of a sudden GHO was worth more because of they were getting a movie and stuff, but it was, yeah, I just, it was like a, I think they didn't want to sort of be associated with this scrappy little company if they could do something more, you know, like, I don't know, classy or I don't, I don't know, you know, more, more prestige, you know, or, or big. So, you know, I, I remember we were really bummed about it and it really kind of, you know, it put a big, big stop in most of our plans and, you know, I think by 2007, I was kind of already working on some Marvel stuff and such anyway, but it certainly like slowed down any kind of plan we had to expand. And, you know, yeah, it was a bummer. But, uh, you know, we knew going in, like you're licensing something. And, and part of this is we knew we had to make our own things to keep people coming to Devil's Due because we didn't own G.I. Joe. So that's why I did Hack Slash. Like I knew I, ne I knew I needed my own thing. And that's why Josh was doing Mercy. And that's why. 
you know, we were working on stuff knowing that this was a, a possibility. I think IDW is probably going through it now. So <laughs> it just, it all comes full circle. I love those guys. You know, it's not like, it's not like we're all like to hell with you guys. Like we knew those guys, we knew Chris and, and all those guys at IDW. We were friends with everybody. So, you know, it's just the nature of the game. What I preferred to work on staff at a company and have health insurance and, and all that stuff. Yes, I would have preferred that. Uh, but I have been a freelancer now for what, 18 years. So this is just the way it is. <laughs> when, when GI Joe left, uh, Devils Do, did Devils Do downsize and you stopped being staff? We downsized, but I didn't stop being staff. We just had less, like we would do stuff on the side. I, th- I was still there for another year or two, I think, year, a, a year, I think. Um, but I was kind of working, like helping out. Uh, we were doing, um, you know, a couple of like the finishing up the Dungeons and Dragons stuff and whatever. But, you know, the we did downsize. We did get a new space. Uh, and then I kind of just, I would do stuff like four devils do. I was still doing hack slash, but I was also drawing for Marvel. I was drawing Exiles at the time. I think, you know, I just I had to go freelance. Like there wasn't enough stuff, so I think I I don't remember exactly when, but I remember we decided to, that I wouldn't be staff anymore. I would just be a contractor, and I know I definitely had to go through some tax shit because of that. <laughs> because I stopped being a contractor. That's what everyone to wants. A freelancer, and that was a whole bunch of shit. But um, yeah, you know, and it was just like, fortunately, you know, I, I knew people, I knew enough people in the in the business. Devil's Due was still publishing Hackslash for a couple more years uh, until we went to Image. But it, you know, not having GI Joe and not having that main lifeline and not having sort of come up with enough of our own stuff that hit was kind of too much for the company to continue with the size that it was. Obviously, Devil's Due is still going to this day but just in a much different capacity because it wasn't a sustainable way to do anything without those licenses, you know, and IDW fortunately is going to have a bunch of stuff to cushion them. You know, they've got other stuff. They've got Ninja Turtles and stuff. They're going to be fine, but it's tough. You know, that's that having now published hack slash an image for what? 13 years, 14 years, 13 years, you know, like I know it's tough. <laughs> I know what it's like to publish your own stuff and, and try to have it, it hit. It's pretty tough. Um, I was just going to share what you drew for me the last time we saw each other oh, yeah. in London, 2013. Oh, it's sketch. Not bad, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's in the front of my G.I. Joe bowing there. Great Cobra Commander. Mark has bound his issues of G.I. Joe. Very cool. You know what's funny? That they call it disavowed, which is now also what the IDW stuff will be. <laughs> so you're you're all disavowed. <laughs> <laughs> they'll need a new name yeah. for it yeah <laughs> i wanted to go back to sort of the beginning when we interviewed blaylock he said that um so he had done penguin brothers for uh he had self-published penguin penguin brothers through yeah. labyrinth studios and he said that um then yeah. he did minotaur and he said that you had redrawn it that and then i got a follow-up where he said uh, you re- redrew one issue. Uh, our idea was to pitch it for a larger publishing deal. Image, yeah. Okay, so um, just so I can get, because this is so, the, you know, the, the sort of to know that that two guys at the beginning, before they sort of hit it big, are doing this scrappy stuff. It's, I feel like it's like oh, it's like Eastman and Laird in 1983, before that first convention with Ninja Turtles one. All right, so sure, yeah, yeah, less money. 
<laughs> so the two of you decided that you were going to, you redrew an entire comic that he'd already drawn? Sort of. Uh, so he had Minotaur, which he had self-published. Uh, and then, you know, Josh's style, I think he is he's more comfortable with more cartoony stuff. And, you know, Penguin Brothers and such was, and, you know, Mercy eventually. So I'd done like a more realistic take on it, like more, I don't know, 90s image-ish, which is kind of how I draw. And uh, and he liked it. And so then he did a version of Minotaur, like a re, sort of rewrite of the first issue, uh, where we were going to take that to Image. And we sent it to um, Jim Valentino, I remember. It was like a big deal to me that Jim Valentino was seeing my stuff. And then, you know, I, mean, I remember we got a pretty good response, but I don't think they took it. Uh, maybe, I can't remember exactly how that went. Um, but we kept kind of plugging away at stuff, and that's how we ended up eventually at G.I. Joe. And then we took that remake of Minotaur and we turned it into Core, which is a book that we published at Image that I drew and Josh wrote, which is kind of, it was kind of a reshuffle of Minotaur. We couldn't call him Minotaur because uh, Top Cow at the time had a, a label called Minotaur Press. So we had to na- rename him, and so he went from the Minotaur to the Manicore, and we just called it Core, and that was the that's how that all happened. Okay, and just so that I can get this sentence right, you did draw that first issue of that updated Minotaur. I did, yes. I have it here somewhere. Okay. Uh, Mark, let me pass the mic back to you for our extra minutes. What, what's interesting, sort of reading around The Devil's Due, really, is just the sort of the, that period is, is that sense of it being a bullpen of who, you know, everyone being there and sort of pulling together in one direction. I like guess, can you maybe just reflect a little bit on, on sort of that? you know, what that environment was like sort of in that, in that sort of GI Joe heyday of uh, devil's due. I mean, it was the most fun part of my career I, to this day. I can't beat, you know, we, I would come in at uh, eight 30 in the morning. I would work with Mike and Josh and Sam and Sean and, uh, and Susan. And we would just, you know, Marshall and crank and all those guys, my brother worked there for a while. It was just so much fun. We were always jamming. We were always coming up with shit. I mean, I remember one, like one of the most fun we ever had was we had uh, we bought a bunch of airsoft guns and we had a giant war in this building that we had. And just like, you know, we were it was the coolest thing. It was like the 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 thing that I would always want when I was a kid is I would read these you know wizard interviews and they would go to extreme studios and it'd be Rob and Dan Fraga and Morant Michaels and all these guys jamming or or Gaijin studios where it was like you know Jason Pearson and Cully Hamner and. And Brian Stelfreeze, and just the idea of like all the people sitting around making shit together, and like going for beers and and you know like get invited to cool parties and shit. Like I was like, that's what I was wanted, and that's what Devils Do was. Like you know, we that first year we did, I think fourteen conventions or something. We we would travel every weekend. You know, we were young. You know, I was in my early twenties. Like we were at top of the world. It was it was a blast. It was also like the comics industry is not built for you to have that much fun. It is not built for you to enjoy your job that much. Uh, it is built to be a grind and it's built to make you a freelancer and alone. And that sucks. And I don't, I, I, it's, it's really sad that I doubt anybody else will get to have that kind of experience in comics. Like we had, I mean, I'm sure the dude's making like NFTs or some bullshit or having a little time, but like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I think they're all working remotely. Probably. Yeah. But it, Okay. It's just a, you know, it was a particular time. Uh, energy was so much, you know, so positive and, and, you know, and we could argue and I, we were always kind of come out on the other side, like uh, with some kind of understanding, which is not something I can say happens 
after working at Dell's Do. So, you know, it was a blast. And I, you know, I'm always grateful to Josh. I always tell him, you know, thank you so much for, for that. I'm always grateful to Hasbro for giving us that opportunity, which is why I don't, you know, I don't have any sort of ill will that we lost the license. Like we had this amazing moment, you know, and I'm still able to, I work on Master of the Universe now all the time. So like that 80s toy stuff has always been part of my creative DNA. And, and it's, you know, I, I, I can give it all those things. I, I have to give all the credit to those, you know, those five years that I worked at Devil's Do. You know, I, Hackslash comes from there. So yeah, it's it was awesome. And I, I really wish it could be done again. I wish that was something that the comics industry supported, but it doesn't. We've not spoken too much about like specific like art styles and, and process. You you sort of mentioned a few times like being really enthused by the the image style. And and would it be fair to say, I guess, that that your approach would be like you wanted to make comics or draw comics that that would look like your favorite exciting image comics? Yeah. I mean, I think that's always kind of uh, my sort of thing. But I mean, I'm not like a, I'm not a superhero guy, right? Like, I, I mean, I am, but I'm not just a superhero guy. So I think like that part of comics has not ever been the sort of grind, the driving force for me to make them. But I, you know, when I sit down to draw something, what I grew up on comes back out to some degree. So, you know, I'm working on this book, Local Man, right now, which is, you know, a, a book I'm writing and uh, drawing with Tony Fleeks. And so, he does the stuff that's set in the modern day and looks kind of crime noir, kind of uh, Sean Phillipsy. And then the side that's, you know, the crazy 90s superhero thing is me. And because when I sit down to do something, that's what comes out of my head easily, uh, despite me not being, you know, exclusively a superhero guy. So, you know, it's I, I think you, you don't have much of a choice, but what your style is sort of a acclim it's a uh, amalgamation of things that you are and things that you like and things that struck you and you have to have fun when you're drawing so you tend to put the things out that you had fun viewing right so you know there's all kinds of little things in there and i I think i'm better now but i don't think i've changed that much as an artist i still like sexy ladies and scary monsters (laughs) and dumb kirby jack kirby shit and you know i'm the same as i've always been and you actually you had some like art assists on on like the backgrounds and stuff like that. Is is that just time or is it also that that's not the fun stuff to to draw? It's the, the you know the people and the poses and stuff that that's more enjoyable. Um, I mean that's part of it, but it wasn't the reason. It was always time, and it was always like the when we were doing you know we had to do things so fast, and and part of it was just to justify my paycheck, right? And it's like you know comic you're working in a comic studio i'm making you know whatever 40 grand a year something's like okay well what does that translate to how many pages a week right and so and it became easier you know jason malay would come in and, and do some background stuff and help me out and that way we could get two books out, out a month right like i could draw gi joe and i could do an issue of you know dungeons and dragons or and, and so so much of it was just like that's how studios used to work. I mean, Will Eisner's studio back in the forties, that's how it worked. Some people would draw, you know, background for the bullpen at Marvel. That's how it would work. So it, it was very old school in its way, but it was also just like a necessity because we knew, Hey, it's going to take two weeks to get this approved by Hasbro. So we better build in some time and get this book done in a week or two weeks, you know? So that was, it was just always like us responding to whatever we had to do to get, a G.I. Joe or Transformers comic or just how do we get it out? Okay, here's how we do it. And did you did you have a particular tool or technique to achieve that? Did you have like a box of G.I. Joe figures on your desk, for example, that you'd you'd pose as part of your drawing process? 
No, but I did have a lot of vehicles. The figures I always used the um we had a uh, um the Marvel handbooks, I think. We were using those and then we were like, well, let's make one for ourselves and then also we'll sell it. And we had yeah. done those uh, Order of Battle books, I think, that we had done. What, was that? what were our calls? Strike Files? Oh, Battle Zone? I don't remember. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Battle Files, was it? Battle Files. So we made those for ourselves because we were using the Marvel ones. And then. And Marvel sort of made Order of Battle for the artists, sort of, and then to sell. Yep, exactly. So we were doing the same thing. But the vehicles I definitely had to have around because, you know, as many as I could. I remember I had an airstriker on my desk and I had. Uh, what else did I have? Just like the stuff that we would do a lot of sort of angles on and just need to draw pretty accurate because they weren't meant to, you know, they weren't meant to look like real planes all the time. Like some of them did, but we weren't really allowed to use like always real planes. So we had to kind of just, you know, the toys are kind of amalgamations in there. So, you know, we were, we were always sort of aware that it had to be the toy more than it had to be anything, you know, and sort and sort of realistic. But I, I will say one thing about drawing GI Joe is, once you start drawing a superhero book, you're like, holy shit, this is so much easier. <laughs> they have tights on and they don't have tons of folds and fucking backpacks and uh, webbing and all that shit. Uh, and guns, God, I, you know, after that was one of the things like by the time I was done drawing, I was like, if I don't draw a gun for a while, I'm good. I, I hate drawing guns, especially realistic guns. Like if I never have to draw a fucking M16 again, I'd be happy. Um, so, you know, that was a big part of that drawing G.I. Joe that is not a part of drawing you know, Exiles or Spider-Man or whatever. Excellent. Uh, we'll just give you an opportunity to, to shout out where people can find you and uh, if there's anything that, that you want people to, to check out right now. Sure. Uh, you can find me on uh, Instagram, Tim Seeley, and you can find me on uh, Twitter at Hack and Tim Seeley, in reference to that Hackslash book I've been doing so long. Uh, let's see, the orders for my book, Local Man, are due on Monday, so if you haven't, the 30th of January. If you want to check that book out, uh, I'm really proud of it. It's kind of a combination of everything I like in one place. It's horror, it's crime, noir, it's superheroes, 90 superheroes. And that's from Image Comics. And I have um, Money Shot, which is the Scientist is Porn Stars comic I do. And I have West of Sundown, which is, uh, you know, monster, universal monsters in the Old West. And um, let's see what else I got. All kinds of good stuff. A uh, vampire book I'm doing at Marvel called The Unforgiven comes out this month. So February, March, April, I have tons of shit out. Tons. Wow. Sounds <laughs> like you are being yeah. kept very busy. Yeah. I'm going to I'm gonna be a little specific here because I'm looking forward to Local Man issue number one. Tim, I own a comic book store. And uh, uh, listeners and viewers, issue one is out February 22nd. Yeah. Sure. And uh, Tim, I'll take my uh, journalist podcaster hat off for a second. Uh, we we I very much enjoyed uh, reading the Devil's Due issues and talking to Mark for the podcast. I was not reading them at the time because I was a GI Joe fan who was more protective of the Marvel run. Sure. Um, but putting on my retailer hat, uh, six months ago we turned uh, a stack of Money Shot Volume One face out in the alternative section, and right next to it, Spine Out are Volumes Two and Three. And it's just been selling. Oh, great! We don't have to. We don't have to say anything. That's titties and butts and wieners. Uh, so, <laughs> so and and I haven't I haven't read all the way through, but what I've read I liked. So as a reader, but particularly as a retailer, thank you. Oh yeah, anytime. Hey, we got a new series of it coming out. I think it's uh it's the funniest one yet. So I'm I'm very happy with it. That's a that's the kind of comic I like to make. <laughs> so, you know, happy to have people check it out. Excellent stuff. Uh, so so I think we'll wrap up, Tim. Where uh, 
Tim Finn now. Uh, where can people uh, find you when you're not talking to me and other comics creators? Video essays on TV and film at our YouTube page, Atomic Abe. Uh, my brick and mortar comic book store is in Somerville, Massachusetts, Hub Comics. And I write about G.I. Joe at arealamericanbook.com. And you can find out more about uh, Talking Joe, our podcast, and all the links to things that we do over at talkingjoe.co.uk. So I think that just leaves us to say thank you very much to Tim Seeley for taking the time to talk to us and explore, uh, you know, 20 years past uh, over at <laughs> Devil's Issue. Hey, so you ask me about my office. When we first checked oh, in, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's do, let's do, oh, yeah. let's have a little can look. You, can you explore. point, can you point, can you point to the five coolest things behind you or oh, around you? There's a, okay, wait, there's a Jenny Frizen uh, revival print right there. You got a sweet money shop poster right there. Uh, let's see. I've got a, a Biotron uh, right there from Micronauts. And then right here, I have a uh, Mexican knockoff Freddy He-Man, which is pretty sweet for my brother. <laughs> uh, and then let's see, uh, down here, I've got all of the um, Remco Mighty Crusaders figures in that shelf right behind me, uh, including uh, among those also the Remco Warlord uh, figure. So there you go. And a, and a spinner, spinner rack over your right yep. shoulder, is right. it? Uh, right there is the spinner rack uh, full of a bunch of my comics and also favorite stuff. Uh, this is the my favorite stuff wall. There's also a bunch of mine up there. There's, there's Money Shot. There's a Crow Hack Slash. A uh, whole bunch of stuff. One last quick question. Where and what do you teach? I teach at Columbia College Chicago. Uh, here in Chicago, I teach uh, cartooning, uh, comics, and then I also teach uh, concept art for the illustration department. Does all of the uh, time in the classroom and interacting with students and uh, the department Leave any time to write and draw comics. It has to. Unfortunately. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm last semester I did two full-time jobs. I had a full-time teaching job. I did four classes. I had full-time writing and drawing. I worked 80 hours a week. I do not recommend <laughs> it. I did it for 15 weeks. Uh, I thought I was going to die. So right now I'm just doing two classes, and I'm, um, I'm working on uh, lots of comics, but also a, a movie and um, a, a, a children's book. So I'm keeping... Keeping busy, but the schedule is slightly less death-inducing. This, this children's book is assuredly uh, uh, like Lil Hackslash or Hackslash Babies. Yeah, <laughs> it's a YA book, I guess. Is <laughs> okay. Uh, Tim Seeley, thank you so much for joining us. What a pleasure to uh, to have you on on our podcast. Thanks so much, guys. Sorry it took me a little bit. I, I appreciate it. And uh, Tim Finn, you're going to have to sing. And uh, Tim, Tim Seeley, you're welcome to to join in. So as this is <laughs> this this is a take on the I think it's the 1988 television commercial jingle, um, but with the lyrics slightly changed. <clears throat> uh, Nobody be talking, Joe. An international podcast. <laughs> Very nice. There we go. I couldn't let you off the hook, Tim. <laughs> the latest. Thanks, guys.